At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. This is a news and political podcast, and there is much to discuss in both areas from the extraordinarily slow drip, drip, drip of the Trump Georgia grand jury to whether or not Nikki Haley could pass her own presidential mental competency test, to whether or not anybody can stop the killer windows of Russia. And all that is coming up. But Tim McCarver died yesterday, and I am heartbroken. And I will make no apologies for devoting this first segment to him. When I was 24 years old and working as a sports correspondent for CNN in New York, I reluctantly admitted to myself that my affection for baseball was failing. I had seen my childhood team, the Yankees, rise from the ashes to win two World Series, and I was in the stands in Boston as they completed the greatest midseason comeback in the game's history. But the Yankees' perpetual churn had exhausted me, and five seasons of having to go to baseball games as a professional rather than just wanting to go to them as a fan had left me bored. And one night after work in April or May of 1983, I was sitting in my little apartment in New York finding nothing to watch even on the cable system offering the world's widest assortment of channels, 50 of them, and I somehow landed back on the New York station Channel 9 Whereas the hapless New York Mets were cavorting on my screen, two men were laughing uncontrollably. I mean, I came in from Channel 8 or Channel 10, and the first thing I saw was the ball game at Shea Stadium, and the first thing I heard was these two guys laughing. No words, no explanation, no self-control, just laughing. Well, that was different. I had never in my life been a fan of the New York Mets. I grew up Yankee. And even as that had begun to wane, I was not going to become a Mets fan. I didn't hate them. 
At age 10, I was overjoyed when my dad was able to get us two tickets to a Mets 1969 World Series game. And I had seen the Mets on TV hundreds of times before, but never to watch them. And yet there I was, having voluntarily stayed in rapt attention to a Mets telecast for 20 or 30 seconds now as these two guys laughed their heads off. Eventually, they settled down, and Ralph Kiner, in his 22nd season as a Mets announcer, said something to Tim McCarver in, like, his 22nd day as a Mets announcer about how neither of them should ever try to say that again. Just then, the inning ended. McCarver said, the Mets are retired in the third, and management may very well retire Ralph and me during the commercial. We'll be right back, or not. Well, now I had to watch. By the next inning, by the time Tim McCarver, whom the Mets had hired away from the Philadelphia Phillies the previous winter, had explained the name that he and Ralph Kiner so butchered that they dissolved into laughter, I was a Tim McCarver fan. The Mets were awful that year. Promising, but still the second worst team in baseball. They had not finished last or next to last in seven years. And laughing during their broadcast for any reason was better than paying attention to their games. And yet it quickly dawned on me that I was not only laughing along with McCarver and Kiner, but also I was paying attention to the game. It was as if I were sitting with these two guys in the stands somewhere, and we were enjoying what we could of the 1983 Mets, with McCarver in particular pointing out something subtle on the field that I would have otherwise missed. And in a much larger sense, we, McCarver, Kiner, and the viewer, we were sitting there enjoying the fact of baseball. The individual game always mattered to Tim McCarver, but where it fit into the jigsaw puzzle of that season's games, or into the vaster jigsaw puzzle of all the games he'd ever seen, all the games there had ever been, that was far more important. Well, before the week was out, I was a Met fan because of Tim McCarver, and my dying baseball fandom had been resuscitated because of Tim McCarver. As of 1983, very few baseball broadcasts, in fact, very few sportscasts, were interesting to watch as television programs. Tony Kubek had done the baseball game of the week and was crisp and informative, and he enjoyed himself, and he taught me and other kids and adults what to look for. But Vin Scully had only returned to the national baseball stage that same year, 1983. And Bob Costas had only become the backup on NBC's Game of the Week the year before. Baseball television was, if not a desert, a really arid place. Tim McCarver was never arid. He was happy to criticize any player or any manager at any time for strategical or logistical malfeasance. But he was also happy to underline whenever he was wrong and they were right. You can't shade the defense that way and throw him a fastball in that situation. He'll put it over the fence. If seconds after that, the batter hit not a home run but a soft liner to the shortstop whose location McCarver had just criticized, Tim's self-flagellation would be short and exact. Or maybe you can. I'll try to stop managing from up here now. Usually, of course, he was exactly right. 
about 15 years ago, he kind of fell out of favor with some fans and some critics because the freshness of his approach as of 1983, tell the viewer not just what happened, but what's going to happen next and what's going to happen after that and what's going to happen after that. That had been imitated by every baseball analyst and indeed by every TV sports analyst and by a lot of sportscasters in studios. And a lot of the imitators were younger and smoother and with a less pronounced accent. And as is inevitable with time, they had become faster. Lost in that is that they all were and are Tim McCarver imitators. McCarver rose quickly in baseball TV. He went right from the Philadelphia Phillies active roster, and he was a great catcher to announcing for the Phillies and occasionally for NBC in 1980, then to the Mets in 1983, as I mentioned, and ABC Sports in 1984, and his first of 23 World Series in 1985. When CBS got baseball in 1990, they hired him. I was at the CBS station in Los Angeles and got to interview him. I predicted that the underdog Cincinnati Reds would win the World Series in 1990 and maybe even sweep. And McCarver said, I think that way, too. I was afraid to say it. I thought I was the only one. When CBS lost baseball in 1994, ABC rehired him. When Fox got baseball in 1996, they hired him away. And all that time, he was also doing full seasons in New York with the Mets. And when the Mets hesitated to bring him back, the Yankees grabbed him in 1999, and he was their lead announcer, play-by-play man, and a good one for three seasons. I had met Tim McCarver when he was going from player to announcer at the 1980 World Series. I was startled to see him on the field at Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia carrying the latest volume of Martin Gilbert's series of biographies of Winston Churchill. I introduced myself and I said I had just finished that book and hoped he enjoyed it as much as I had. He asked me how I thought it compared to Churchill's dozens of volumes of his own autobiography. Well, I said, there are fewer of them. McCarver laughed loudly. Good, this is heavy enough on the plane, he said. And when in 1983 I became a McCarver fan and got to tell him so, he immediately asked me if there were things he could improve on. Well, I gave him some technical voice tips and told him not to worry too much about them, that he was really pretty good at it as it was. And I said, I suppose this had begun when he was with the 1965 St. Louis Cardinals. They had 35 players on the team that year, 25 of them making the roster for most of the season. Eventually, of those 35, McCarver became a broadcaster and his teammates Bill White and Lou Brock became broadcasters and Kurt Flood and Mike Shannon and Bob Uecker and Bob Gibson, and Nelson Bryles, and they would all become baseball announcers. And then their teammate Dick Grote would become a basketball announcer, and their teammate Bob Perkey would become a local sportscaster in Pittsburgh. That's 10 out of 35. McCarver said, on the team bus, it was a life and death struggle to be heard. I got to work again with Tim McCarver on a regular basis at Fox. In 1999 and 2000, I was the host of Fox's pregame show for the game of the week that Tim did with Joe Buck every Saturday, and also the pregame show host of our coverage of the playoffs in the World Series. Mid-season, I would appear in their broadcast from the studio doing highlights of other games, and then in October, I would literally be in one of the team dugouts. I am proud to say that in the former role, I once managed to reduce Tim McCarver to silence. 
on June 17th, 2000, Tim and Joe Buck were doing the game of the week from Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, and I was, as usual, in the L.A. studio doing the highlights for them, watching all the games simultaneously on an array of televisions stacked one atop the other. In the fourth inning at Yankee Stadium, the Yankee second baseman Chuck Knobloch, whose defensive play had been deteriorating for more than a year, charged a softly hit ground ball and tried to throw it back behind him to first base. He not only did not come close to first base, but the throw, in fact, bounced off the top of the Yankees' dugout and hit a fan in the stands. Now, I knew Yankee Stadium intimately. I had more or less grown up there, and I knew if the ball had not hit somebody in the season ticket seats that my family had had there since 1976, it had come close. Probably hit my mother, I said to the stage crew. Everybody laughed. And then the Yankees broadcast cut to a shot of the afflicted fan holding her head and being attended to by stadium staff. It was my mother. Nobody laughed. So, moments later, after I'd gotten her on the phone, when Buck and McCarver threw to me for a Fox game break, I narrated that exact highlight, and I said that Chuck Knobloch's throwing problems had now gotten personal, that he had now hit my mother. We showed her. Her glasses are broken, Joe and Tim, and she's going home, but I've just spoken to her. She's okay. Joe, Tim? There was silence. I mean, a lot of silence. Finally, Tim McCarver said, What? Huh? Is that? I'm speechless. Is that one of Keith's jokes? Keith, are you still there? Was that really your mother? I'm here, Tim. My, my goodness, is she? What are the odds? Tim, she's been going to Yankee games since 1934, and nothing bad has ever happened to her before today. I'd say the odds are pretty good. But is she? She's, she's fine. She'll be back in that same seat tomorrow. She's a gamer. Oh, and she asked me to tell you she likes you better now that you're with the Yankees and not the Mets. After that, I never saw Tim McCarver without him asking how my mother was. In fact, he called me after the, his game ended that day to make sure. After my mother passed away, Tim would say he had been thinking of her. Nobody I know who knew Tim McCarver personally could recall a difficult experience with him. He was a sweet man who enjoyed himself, enjoyed baseball, enjoyed broadcasting, enjoyed talking, enjoyed listening, enjoyed meeting you, enjoyed singing. He put out a jazz album, and he saved my love for baseball when it nearly died, literally 40 years ago. And one last thing. Tim McCarver said something once on a baseball broadcast that is, to my mind, the greatest piece of predictive analysis I have ever heard in any sport, possibly in any realm in television, politics, news, the weather, but definitely sports. And it wasn't just that he pointed out what everybody else in the stadium had seemingly missed, including a manager who had just led his team to three consecutive World Series championships, it was when he said it. This was in the bottom of the ninth inning of the seventh game of the World Series in literally the last seconds of the most emotional two months of the most emotional baseball season ever. This was on November 4th, 2001. As in a horror film or a disaster movie, there was just enough time for one person and one person alone to see that the monster was not dead 
or that the dam would not hold. And in this case, that person was Tim McCarver. And this audio from the Fox broadcast of that World Series game, it's not slick. It doesn't sound scripted. There are no catchphrases. It isn't hip. It isn't full of metrics. It merely predicts the exact outcome to the inch of the play that would decide and end the entire baseball season seconds afterwards. The chance of a lifetime for Luis Gonzalez. 2-2, bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series. Bases loaded, infield in, one out. Strike one. problem is Rivera throws inside the left-handers, and left-handers get a lot of broken bad hits in the shallow outfield, the shallow part of the outfield. That's the danger in bringing the infield in with a guy like Rivera on the mound. Louis Gonzalez's hit landed exactly where Tim McCarver had said the Yankees should have had their infielders playing, but didn't. When I saw Tim the next season, I said this to him, and I said this about him to every TV writer who asked, that that was the Bill Mazeroski World Series winning home run of all baseball analysis ever. And so in the last 20 years, whenever it was my privilege to see Tim McCarver at a ballpark, he would always say two things to me as if he were saying them to me for the first time. He would say, thank you, Keith, for what you said about 2001. And Keith, I was just thinking of your dear mother. As so many of us will now be just thinking of our dear friend, and colleague, Tim McCarver. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline 1211 6th Avenue, New York City. When Jackie Heinrich of Fox News tweeted on November 12, 2020, that, quote, there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes or was in any way compromised, Fox's Tucker Carlson texted his pal Sean Hannity, quote, please get her fired. Seriously, what the blank? I'm actually shocked. It needs to stop immediately. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down. The message got to Fox's PR person, the eternally loathsome Irina Briganti, and Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, nominally in charge of news at Fox News. Scott sent Briganti a text about the reporter, who had actually reported the truth. Quote, she has serious nerve doing this, and if this gets picked up, viewers are going to be further disgusted. This is the head of news at Fox News deliberately undermining the news. All this part of a 192-page document filed a month ago by Dominion Voting Systems in its suit against Fox News revealed yesterday. It is full of internal Fox texts and memos. The story gets as far as Rupert Murdoch, who got up out of his crypt and emailed Suzanne Scott about the real issue here that Newsmax was taking away Fox News's audience. They, quote, should be watched if skeptically. Trump will concede eventually, and we should concentrate on Georgia, helping any way we can. Roop, of course, meant the Georgia Senate runoff, which they lost. We don't want to antagonize Trump further, but Giuliani taken with a large grain of salt. Everything at stake here. Should he never use the word stake? Like, you know, Dracula... The real problem for Fox may be Carlson's text to somebody named Pfeiffer on January 6, 2021, that Trump is, quote, a demonic force, a destroyer. 20 days later, Carlson added, what Trump's good at is destroying things. He's the world champion of that. He could easily destroy us if we play it wrong. There is so much in the 192-page document about the canceling of an entire Janine Pirro show after it was recorded, texts in which Sean Hannity says Rudy Giuliani is acting like an insane person, and Laura Ingram calls him such an idiot, and two Lou Dobbs producers refer to Giuliani's insanity lately and how he is so full of blank. There's so much in here, they should make it into a Netflix series. And the title of the Netflix series should be Morons. Never write anything down. Thank you, Nancy Faust. Dateline Atlanta. Man, at this rate, we're going to find out whether they're indicting Trump sometime in the year 4766. A judge has now released another part of the special grand jury investigation into Trump's attempt to overthrow democracy and alter the outcome of the 2020 presidential vote in Georgia. And among the endless dribs and drabs, this drib says the jurors at the grand jury believe one or more of the witnesses they heard committed perjury. 
That is out of 75 witnesses, so we can have no idea who the one or ones might have been. <coughs> Rudy! <coughs> Rudy! Dateline Washington, Senator John Fetterman of Pennsylvania not only had the guts to check himself into Walter Reed because he did not feel right, but he had the guts to issue a statement indicating it was because he was suffering from acute depression. Not only do doctors expect a quick recovery, but Lord knows how many people who are afraid or ashamed of that diagnosis just got the courage to seek help because of what Senator Fetterman did. And Dateline New York, the Central Park Zoo here in New York, I know I flackoed you to death, but two weeks into his freedom, the escaped eagle owl has proved he can survive on his own. He loves Central Park and is exploring it. He feeds himself by eating rats, and he seems to have learned to perch only where people can see him and photograph him easily. So naturally, the zoo is rumored to have set a honey trap to try to recapture him after two weeks. Put a female eagle owl, or possibly just a recording of a female eagle owl, it's hard to be sure in the dark, right guys, in a trap to snare him. Why? He's functioning beautifully. He still lives in the neighborhood. What's the greater risk? That Flacco might eat a rat that just ate rat poison? or that he has to live another 50 years in a small room. And Dateline St. Petersburg, Russia. The head of the financial support department of the Russian defense ministry there is dead. 58-year-old Marina Yankina fell out of a window. And she, of course, is the first prominent Russian government official or military official to die in that fashion in nearly eight weeks. Ahead, Fridays with Thurber, and fittingly, with the passing of a great baseball broadcaster, I'll read you Thurber's story, which starts with the words of another great baseball broadcaster. First, time for the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Nikki Haley. I forgot something yesterday in my screed about her presidential candidacy announcement. She says she would advocate for a mental competency test for any presidential candidate over the age of 75. Why over 75? Why not over 50? I mean, you think Trump only went crazy on his 76th birthday and he wasn't crazy at 51? You know why she doesn't want to make the test mandatory at 50, right? Because she's 51. Last July, Nikki Haley tweeted out a meme that looked like a register receipt. It read, Joe Biden's Inconvenience Store, and it showed price increases for a hot dog, 15.6%, and a soda, 13.2%, and condiments, 11.9%, and ice cream, 9.6%, and bread, 8.7%, and watermelon, 8.2%. Then at the bottom, it listed the total, 67.2%, which is not the way percentages work. And why would Nikki Haley know that? Just because her degree from Clemson is in accounting? Why, if I can go from 2% to 4% in each state poll, by the end of the day, I'll be at 100% in the polls for the whole country, won't I? The runner-up, Coltergeist and Coulter, went on a podcast this weekend called Nikki Haley a bimbo made fun of India's reverence for cows and insisted Haley should, well, the quote was, why don't you go back to your own country, unquote. Nikki Haley was born in Bamberg, South Carolina. 
As I have said, ever since I first heard Coulter claim that she graduated from Cornell with a history degree, I'm going to need to see the actual diploma because even us Cornell ag guys know how to use the Google nitwit. But the winner, Marco Gecke, a choreographer from Germany, he says that the critic Vibke Huster wrote yet another personal attack on him disguised in the form of a review, so he responded as all thoughtful artists would. He went up to Miss Huster at Hanover's Opera House last Saturday and smeared dog feces all over her face. She screamed, she got the cops, he apologized profusely, and then the Hanover State Ballet said it could only do one thing under those circumstances, keep presenting his marvelous ballet works, feces be damned. Chastened by his good fortune, Geki then said he was wrong to smear dog feces all over the critic's face, but he added that coverage of this story was all wrong and should not be focused on him smearing feces on her face, but on how wrong she was as a reviewer. I'm still not free of this anger, Geke added, since she had only written two positive pieces about his work ever. He then said, if I'd been a woman and the critic a man, this would be seen differently, unquote. Now, now actually, and, and I say this as a guy who for six years had a TV critic in Los Angeles write hit pieces on me, and later it turned out he was taking bribes from a rival TV station. I say it as that guy. If, Mr. Geeky, you were a real man, you would not have smeared dog feces on a critic's face. And by the way, Marco... Who brings dog feces to the ballet gecker today's worst person with dog feces? At least it was his own dog in the world! At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Still ahead on Countdown, Fridays with Thurber. And in memory of my late friend Tim McCarver, what better than the story that hinges on the words of another immortal baseball broadcaster, Red Barber. 
the catbird seat. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day. And we'll go to outside Houston in Spring, Texas. And Rio, Falcon, Titan, Torino, and Tundra. Five beautiful brown and brindle two-month-old stray pups who have been felled by the dreaded word parvo. Corridor Rescue of Spring, Texas has them. They are in the ER at the local animal hospital. Parvovirus is a nightmarish scourge of young dogs. Two of the pups are doing well. The other three are touch and go. Costs to try to save them all. A little over $800 each. Just $800 each. Go to givinggrid.com and search Corridor Rescue and they'll pop up. Or you can just look for them on my Twitter feed. Donate if you can. Your retweets will also help greatly. I thank you. And Rio, Falcon, Titan, Torino, and Tundra also thank you. Number one story on the countdown, and since it is the weekend edition, it's time for some James Thurber. The catbird seat combines two of my all-time favorite things, Thurber and baseball broadcasting. As Thurber will reveal in the story, the title comes from a catchphrase used by the Brooklyn Dodgers legendary announcer Red Barber, the man who trained Vin Scully and is my late friend Vin's only true competition for greatest baseball play-by-play man of all time. I met Red Barber once. I interviewed him for CNN. He called me Keith throughout the interview. I was so starstruck, it's pretty much all I remember from the interview. Anyway, Burt Lancaster bought the movie rights to this story, and he got Billy Wilder to commit to direct it. Well, how come you've never heard of this perfect-sounding film, The Catbird Seat, directed by Billy Wilder? They sold the rights, and in 1960, the film was made, but they relocated it from Manhattan to Scotland, starring Peter Sellers dressed up as an old man as Mr. Martin. It's okay, unless you've read the story or had it read to you. From the Thurber Carnival, 1945, The Catbird Seat by James Thurber. Mr. Martin bought the pack of camels on Monday night in the most crowded cigar store on Broadway. It was theater time, and seven or eight men were buying cigarettes. The clerk didn't even glance at Mr. Martin, who put the pack in his overcoat pocket and went out. If any of the staff at F&S had seen him buy the cigarettes, they would have been astonished. For it was generally known that Mr. Martin did not smoke and never had. No one saw him. It was just a week to the day since Mr. Martin had decided to rub out Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. The term rub out pleased him because it suggested nothing more than the correction of an error. In this case, an error of Mr. Fitweiler. Mr. Martin had spent each night of the past week working out his plan and examining it. As he walked home now, he went over it again. For the hundredth time, he resented the element of imprecision, the margin of guesswork that entered into the business. The project, as he had worked it out, was casual and bold. The risks were considerable. Something might go wrong anywhere along the line. 
And therein lay the cunning of his scheme. No one would ever see in the cautious, painstaking hand of Irwin Martin, head of the filing department at F&S, of whom Mr. Fitwiler had once said, Man is fallible, but Martin isn't. No one would see his hand, that is, unless he were caught in the act. Sitting in his apartment, drinking a glass of milk, Mr. Martin reviewed his case against Mrs. Old Jean Barrows, as he had every night for seven nights. He began at the beginning. Her quacking voice and braying laugh had first profaned the halls of FNS on March 7, 1941. Mr. Martin had a head for dates. Old Roberts, the personnel chief, had introduced her as the newly appointed special advisor to the president of the firm, Mr. Fitwiler. The woman had appalled Mr. Martin instantly, but he had not shown it. He had given her his dry hand, a look of studious concentration, and a faint smile. Well, she said, looking at the papers on his desk, are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? As Mr. Martin recalled that moment over his milk, he squirmed slightly. He must keep his mind on her crimes as a special advisor, not on her peccadilloes as a personality. This he found difficult to do in spite of entering an objection and sustaining it. The faults of the woman as a woman kept chattering on in his mind like an unruly witness. She had, for almost two years now, baited him in the halls in the elevator, even in his own office, into which she romped now and then like a circus horse. She was constantly shouting these silly questions at him. Are you lifting the ox cart out of the ditch? Are you tearing up the pea patch? Are you hollering down the rain barrel? Are you scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel? Are you sitting in the catbird seat? It was Joey Hart one of Mr. Martin's two assistants, who had explained what the gibberish meant. She must be a Dodger fan, he had said. Red Baba announces the Dodger games over the radio, and he uses these expressions. Picked them up down south. Joey had gone on to explain one or two. Tearing up the pea patch meant going on a rampage. Sitting in the catbird seat meant sitting pretty like a batter with three balls and no strikes on him. Mr. Martin dismissed all this with an effort. It had been annoying. It had driven him near to distraction, but he was too solid a man to be moved to murder by anything so childish. It was unfortunate, he reflected, as he passed on to the important charges against Mrs. Barrows, that he had stood up under it so well. He had maintained always an outward appearance of polite tolerance. Why, I even believe you like the woman, Miss Paired, his other assistant, had once said to him. He had simply smiled. A gavel wrapped in Mr. Martin's mind, and the case proper was resumed. Mrs. Algene Barrows stood charged with willful, blatant, and persistent attempts to destroy the efficiency and system of FNS. It was confident, material, and relevant to review her advent and rise to power. Mr. Martin had got the story from Miss Paired, who seemed always able to find things out. According to her, Mrs. Barrows had met Mr. Fitwiler at a party 
where she had rescued him from the embraces of a powerfully built drunken man who had mistaken the president of F&S for a famous retired Middle Western football coach. She had led him to a sofa and somehow worked upon him a monstrous magic. The aging gentleman had jumped to the conclusion there and then that this was a woman of singular attainments, equipped to bring out the best in him and in the firm. A week later, he had introduced her into F&S as his special advisor. On that day, confusion got its foot in the door. After Miss Tyson, Mr. Brundage, and Mr. Bartlett had been fired and Mr. Munson had taken his hat and stalked out, mailing in his resignation letter, old Roberts had been emboldened to speak to Mr. Fitwiler. He mentioned that Mr. Munson's department had become a little disrupted, and hadn't they perhaps better resume the old system there? Mr. Fitwiler had said certainly not. He had the greatest faith in Mrs. Barrow's ideas. They require a little seasoning. A little seasoning is all, he had added. Mr. Roberts had given it up. Mr. Martin reviewed in detail all the changes wrought by Mrs. Barrows. She had begun chipping at the cornices of the firm's edifice, and now she was swinging at the foundation stones with a pickaxe. Mr. Martin came now in his summing up to the afternoon of Monday, November 2, 1942, just one week ago. On that day, at 3 p.m., Mrs. Barrows had bounced into his office. Boo! She had yelled, are you scraping around the bottom of the pickle barrel? Mr. Martin had looked at her from under his green eyeshade, saying nothing. She had begun to wander about the office, taking it in with her great popping eyes. Do you really need all these filing cabinets? She had demanded suddenly. Mr. Martin's heart had jumped. Each of these files, he had said, keeping his voice even, plays an indispensable part in the system of F&S. She had brayed at him, well, don't tear up the pea patch, and gone to the door. From there she had bawled, but you sure have got a lot of fine scrap in here. Mr. Martin could no longer doubt that the finger was on his beloved department. Her pickaxe was on the upswing, poised for the first blow. It had not come yet. He had received no blue memo from the enchanted Mr. Fitwiler bearing nonsensical instructions deriving from this obscene woman. But there was no doubt in Mr. Martin's mind that one would be forthcoming. He must act quickly. Already a precious week had gone by. Mr. Martin stood up in his living room, still holding his milk glass. Gentlemen of the jury, he said to himself, I demand the death penalty for this horrible person. The next day, Mr. Martin followed his routine as usual. He polished his glasses more often and once sharpened an already sharp pencil, but not even Miss Paired noticed. Only once did he catch sight of his victim. She swept past him in the hall with a patronizing, Hi. At 5.30, he walked home as usual and had a glass of milk as usual. He had never drunk anything stronger in his life, unless you could count ginger ale. The late Sam Schlosser, the S of F and S, had praised Mr. Martin at a staff meeting several years before for his temperate habits. 
One of our most efficient workers neither drinks nor smokes, he had said. The results speak for themselves. Mr. Fitwiler had sat by, nodding approval. Mr. Martin was still thinking about that red-letter day as he walked over to the Schraft's restaurant on 5th Avenue near 46th Street. He got there, as he always did, at 8 o'clock. He finished his dinner and the financial page of the New York Sun at quarter to nine, as he always did. It was his custom after dinner to take a walk. This time he walked down 5th Avenue at a casual place. His gloved hands felt moist and warm, his forehead cold. He transferred the camels from his overcoat to a jacket pocket. He wondered as he did so if they did not represent an unnecessary note of strain. Mrs. Barrows smoked only luckies. It was his idea to puff a few puffs on a camel after the rubbing out, stub it out in the ashtray holding her lipstick saying luckies, and thus drag a small red herring across the trail. Perhaps it was not a good idea. It would take time. He might even choke too loudly. Mr. Martin had never seen the house on West 12th Street where Mrs. Barrows lived, but he had a clear enough picture of it. Fortunately, she had bragged to everybody about her decky first-floor apartment in the perfectly darling three-story red brick. There would be no doorman or other attendants, just the tenants of the second and third floors. As he walked along, Mr. Martin realized that he would get there before 9.30. He had considered walking north on Fifth Avenue from Shrafts to a point from which it would take him until 10 o'clock to reach the house. At that hour, people were less likely to be coming in or going out. But the procedure would have made an awkward loop in the straight thread of his casualness, and he had abandoned it. It was impossible to figure when people would be entering or leaving the house anyway. There was a great risk at any hour. If he ran into anybody, he would simply have to place the rubbing out of old Jean Barrows in the inactive file forever. The same thing would hold true if there was someone in her apartment. In that case, he would just say that he had been passing by, recognized her charming house, and thought to drop in. It was 18 minutes after 9 when Mr. Martin turned into 12th Street. A man passed him, and a man and a woman talking. There was no one within 50 paces when he came to the house, halfway down the block. He was up the steps and in the small vestibule in no time, pressing the bell under the card that said Mrs. Old Jean Barrows. When the clicking in the lock started, he jumped forward against the door. He got inside fast, closing the door behind him. A bulb in a lantern hung from the hall ceiling on a chain seemed to give a monstrously bright light. There was nobody on the stair which went up ahead of him along the left wall. A door opened down the hall and the wall on the right... He went toward it swiftly on tiptoe. Well, for God's sakes, look who's here, bawled Mrs. Barrows, and her braying laugh rang out like the report of a shotgun. He rushed past her like a football tacker, bumping her. Hey, quit shoving, she said, closing the door behind them. They were in her living room, which seemed to Mr. Martin to be lighted by a hundred lamps. What's after you? she said. You're as jumpy as a goat. He found he was unable to speak. His heart was wheezing in his throat. I, yes, he finally brought out. She was jabbering and laughing as she started to help him off with his coat. No, no, he said. I'll put it here. He took it off and put it on a chair near the door. 
Your hat and gloves, too, she said. You're in a lady's house. He put his hat on top of the coat. Mrs. Barrows seemed larger than he had thought. He kept his gloves on. I was passing by, he said. I, I recognized. Is there anyone here? She laughed louder than ever. No, she said. We're all alone. You're white as a sheet, you funny man. Whatever has come over you, I'll mix you a toddy. She started toward a door across the room. Scotch and soda be all right? But say, you don't drink, do you? She turned and gave him her amused look. Mr. Martin pulled himself together. Scotch and soda will be all right, he heard himself say. He could hear her laughing in the kitchen. Mr. Martin looked quickly around the living room for the weapon. He had counted on finding one there. There were andirons and a poker and something in a corner that looked like an Indian club. None of them would do. It couldn't be that way. He began to pace around. He came to a desk. On it lay a metal paper knife with an ornate handle. Would it be sharp enough? He reached for it and knocked over a small brass jar. Stamps spilled out of it and fell onto the floor with a clatter. Hey! Mrs. Barrows yelled from the kitchen. Are you tearing up the pea patch? Mr. Martin gave a strange laugh. Picking up the knife, he tried its point against his left wrist. It was blunt. It wouldn't do. When Mrs. Barrows reappeared carrying two highballs, Mr. Martin, standing there with his gloves on, became acutely conscious of the fantasy he had wrought. Cigarettes in his pocket, a drink prepared for him. It was all too grossly improbable. It was more than that. It was impossible. Somewhere in the back of his mind, a vague idea stirred, sprouted. For heaven's sake, take off those gloves, said Mrs. Barrows. I always wear them in the house, said Mr. Martin. The idea began to bloom, strange and wonderful. She put the glasses on a coffee table in front of a sofa and sat on the sofa. Come over here, you odd little man, she said. Mr. Martin went over and sat beside her. It was difficult getting a cigarette out of the pack of camels, but he managed it. She held a match for him laughing. Well, she said, handing him his drink, this is perfectly marvelous. You, with a drink and a cigarette. Mr. Martin puffed, not too awkwardly, and took a gulp of the highball. I drink and smoke all the time, he said. He clinked his glass against hers. Here's nuts to that old windbag Fitweiler, he said, and gulped again. The stuff tasted awful, but he made no grimace. Really, Mr. Martin, she said, her voice and posture changing. You are insulting our employer. Mrs. Barrows was now all special advisor to the president. I am preparing a bomb, said Mr. Martin, which will blow the old goat higher than hell. He had only had a little of the drink, which was not strong. It couldn't be that. Do you take dope or something? Mrs. Barrows asked coldly. Heroin, said Mr. Martin. I'll be coked to the gills when I bump that old buzzard off. Mr. Martin, she shouted, getting to her feet. That will be all of that. You must go at once. Mr. Martin took another swallow of the drink. 
He tapped his cigarette out in the ashtray and put the pack of camels on the coffee table. Then he got up. She stood glaring at him. He walked over and put on his hat and coat. Not a word about this, he said and laid an index finger against his lips. All Mrs. Barrows could bring out was a, really? Mr. Martin put his hand on the doorknob. I'm sitting in the catbird seat, he said. He stuck his tongue out at her and left. Nobody saw him go. Mr. Martin got to his apartment, walking, well before 11. No one saw him go in. He had two glasses of milk after brushing his teeth, and he felt elated. It wasn't tipsiness, because he hadn't been tipsy. Anyway, the walk had worn off all effects of the whiskey. He got in bed and read a magazine for a while. He was asleep before midnight. Mr. Martin got to the office at 8.30 the next morning, as usual. At a quarter to nine, old Gene Barrows, who had never before arrived at work before 10, swept into his office. I'm reporting to Mr. Fitwiler now, she shouted. If he turns you over to the police, it's no more than you deserve. Mr. Martin gave her a look of shocked surprise. I beg your pardon, he said. Mrs. Barrows snorted and bounced out of the room, leaving Miss Paird and Joey Hart staring after her. What's the matter with that old devil now? asked Miss Paird. I have no idea, said Mr. Martin, resuming his work. The other two looked at him and then at each other. Miss Paird got up and went out. She walked slowly past the closed door of Mr. Fitwiler's office. Mrs. Barrows was yelling inside, but she was not braying. Miss Paird could not hear what the woman was saying. She went back to her desk. Forty-five minutes later, Mrs. Barrows left the president's office and went into her own, shutting the door. It wasn't until half an hour later that Mr. Fitwiler sent for Mr. Martin. The head of the filing department, neat, quiet, attentive, stood in front of the old man's desk. Mr. Fitwiler was pale and nervous. He took his glasses off and twiddled them. He made a small bruffing sound in his throat. Martin, he said, you have been with us more than 20 years. 22, sir, said Mr. Martin. In that time pursued the president. Your work and uh, your manner have been exemplary. I trust so, sir, said Mr. Martin. I have understood, Martin, said Mr. Fitwiler, that you have never taken a drink or smoked. That is correct, sir, said Mr. Martin. Ah, uh, yes. Mr. Fitwiler polished his glasses. You may describe what you did after leaving the office yesterday, Martin, he said. Certainly, sir, he said. I walked home, then I went to Schraft's for dinner. Afterward, I walked home again. I went to bed early, sir, and read a magazine for a while. I was asleep before 11. Ah, uh, yes, said Mr. Fitwiler again. He was silent for a moment, searching for the proper words to say to the head of the filing department. Mrs. Barrows, he said finally, Mrs. Barrows has worked hard, Martin. Very hard. It grieves me to report that she has suffered a severe breakdown. It has taken the form of a persecution complex accompanied by distressing hallucinations. I'm very sorry, sir, said Mr. Martin. Mrs. Barrows is under the delusion, continued Mr. Fitwiler, that you visited her last evening and behaved yourself in an, uh, an unseemly manner. 
He raised his hand to silence Mr. Martin's little pained outcry. It is the nature of these psychological diseases, Mr. Fitwiler said, to fix upon the least likely and most innocent party as the um, source of persecution. These matters are not for the lay mind to grasp, Martin. I've just had my psychiatrist, Dr. Fitch, on the phone. Uh, He would not, of course, commit himself, but he made enough generalizations to substantiate my suspicions. I suggested to Mrs. Barrows, when she had completed her uh, story to me this morning, that she visit Dr. Fitch, uh, for I suspected a condition at once. She flew, I regret to say, into a rage and demanded, requested that I call you on the carpet. You may not know, Martin, but Mrs. Barrows had planned a reorganization of your department. Subject to my approval, of course, subject to my approval. This brought you rather than anyone else to her mind. But again, uh, that is a phenomenon for Dr. Fitch, not for us. So, Martin, I'm afraid Mrs. Barrow's usefulness here is at an end. I'm dreadfully sorry, sir, said Mr. Martin. It was at this point that the door to the office blew open with the suddenness of a gas main explosion, and Mrs. Barrows catapulted through it. Is the little rat denying it? She screamed. He can't get away with that. Mr. Martin got up and moved discreetly to a point beside Mr. Fitwiler's chair. You drank and smoked at my apartment, she bawled at Mr. Martin, and you know it. You called Mr. Fitwiler an old windbag and said you were going to blow him up when you got coked to your gills on your heroin. She stopped yelling to catch her breath, and a new glint came into her popping eyes. If you weren't such a drab, ordinary little man, she said, I'd think you'd planned it all, sticking your tongue out, saying you were sitting in the cat-buried seat because you thought no one would believe me when I told it. My God, it's really too perfect. She brayed loudly and hysterically, and the fury was on her again. She glared at Mr. Fitwiler. Can't you see how he has tricked us, you old fool? Can't you see his little game? But Mr. Fitwiler had been surreptitiously pressing all the buttons under the top of his desk, and employees of FNS began pouring into the room. Stockton, said Mrs. Fitwiler, you and Fishbein will take Mrs. Barrows to her home. Mrs. Powell, you will go with them. Stockton, who had played a little football in high school, blocked Mrs. Barrows as she made for Mr. Martin. It took him and Fishbein together to force her out of the door into the hall, crowded with stenographers and office boys. She was still screaming imprecations at Mr. Martin, tangled and contradictory imprecations. The hubbub finally died out down the corridor. I regret that this has happened, said Mr. Fitwiler. I shall ask you to dismiss it from your mind, Martin. Yes, sir, said Mr. Martin, anticipating his chiefs. That will be all by moving to the door. I will dismiss it. He went out and shut the door, and his step was light and quick in the hall. When he entered his department, he had slowed down to his customary gait, and he walked quietly across the room to the W-20 file, wearing a look of studious concentration. From the Thurber Carnival, The Catbird Seat by James Thurber. (laughs) 
countdown has come to you from the studios of Olbermann Broadcasting Empire, world headquarters in the Sports Capsule Building in New York. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, arranged, produced, performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, the Countdown musical directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, and it appears courtesy of ESPN. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Stevie Van Zandt, and I thank him as always. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 773rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. The next scheduled countdown with the holiday coming is Tuesday. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.